When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Dave Hend, and I'm delighted to say on the podcast this week, I'm joined by Dominic Dale. Very experienced pro now, over 20 years on the tour, winner of two major ranking titles and still very much going strong. Dominic, what was your introduction to snooker? Well, I had two older brothers. I was living in Coventry then. I was born in Coventry. Um, and my father bought... Uh, a small table for Christmas, a six by three, a quarter size table, um, probably for my brothers to play on, but um, they were more interested in electric guitars and heavy metal music, and that's what they used to play. That's <laughs> like, you know, early teenagers, mm. and I was about seven or eight at the time, or seven actually, and um, I just fell in love with the colour balls and was fascinated by the game, and I was, I was so small, I remember using that sort of almost cue underarm, because I was so <laughs> short, but I was just fascinated by the game. I seem to. It was. I'll I, I never forget one or two. The pots I potted. The first ever time I'd ever played, and yeah. I seem to have a, a sort of a bit of an aptitude for the game, mm. really, at that young age. But I just loved it, and I was glued to it, and I started watching it on television, and mm. that's that's how it sort of started for me at the age of six or seven. So, did, what, did you join a club and start playing regularly? Not really. Um, I played <coughs> after a year or so. We got a much better quarter size table. Right. Um, and that was set up in our uh, study area in, in uh, Coventry. So I grew up in Browns Lane near the Jaguar factory. And um, we had a sideboard. I used to actually play the snooker music. Right, okay. <laughs> While I was practicing. Yeah. I just loved the whole game. And um, yeah, my, my first ever shot, funnily enough, was when <laughs> I was about 10 years old on a full size team. Mm. My father used to work for a machine tool company called Wickman's in Coventry, which is long gone now. And they had their own sort of working men's club there. And uh, I remember him picking me up and, and carrying me through a window that was open on a hot summer's evening to actually play a shot because I wasn't really allowed in there. And I remember yeah. playing the brown off its spot into the middle pocket from the D while the table looked like a football pitch. I mm. think I overcut it by about three inches. But <laughs> that was my first ever shot on a full wow. size at the age of uh, probably about ten. Yeah. So how did your career develop? Because at some point you moved to Wales, don't you? Yeah, at the age of... Um, 11, I think, or 12, I moved to Wales. Yeah, my father was made redundant after Whitman's uh, finished. And uh, he bought this cottage in Wales and um, decided to, uh, to carry on playing snooker while I lived in Wales. And um, 
What really turned things around for me was there was a, a children's television programme called The Saturday Show. Mm. Uh, the hosts were Tommy Boyd and Isla St. Clair. And uh, they announced this big tournament, the Riley National Junior Championship, which was a, a nationwide competition with heats all over the country. Mm. Uh, my heats were in Cardiff, um, and I, I won all the heats. I, th I don't know why, a lot of the players thought the tournament was going to be played on a full-size table, and, and I knew it was on a 6x3 which I was very accustomed to. <laughs> yeah. My highest rate then was 67. Right. And uh, I had this tiny queue that was actually not legal. It was only 34 inches long. Right. had a great big 11 mil tip on it. It was just one of these terrible things you get with a small table. And um, I played a couple of guys, actually, Ian Sargent and Anthony Davis, who later became professional players in, in Wales. And, um, yeah, I won all the heats. And then I was in uh, the last 16, and I played in Sutton Coalfield, the last 16 down to the final. Now, the final was being televised on the Saturday show. And I was, yeah, I was 12 years old then. And uh, amazingly, I kept winning matches all the time. And I got through to the final to be on the Saturday show. Wow. And um, I played a guy from Scotland called Colin Simpson. No one's ever heard of him. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what happened. Obviously, didn't keep, keep it up, the practice and the, and the game of snooker, generally. But um, guests at that TV appearance uh, for the Saturday show were, were Terry Griffiths, Steve Davis, Tony Mayo and Dennis Taylor. Right. And I played a doubles match with them, um, lost in the final of that, but I won the actual whole event outright, the singles. And I'll never forget Tony Mio saying to my father, he said, your son could be a really good player if you had a full-size table to play on. So within a year, we converted one of the outbuildings uh, in West Wales where we were living. I had a, a full-size snooker room, and that's when obviously started to make progress. Then I played in the snooker leagues then a couple of years later as a 14-year-old schoolboy. Mm. And you've got some match experience, and it, that's where it all sort of, stemmed from was playing the Welsh Junior, the yeah. Welsh Youth, the Welsh Senior. You know, those were the stepping stones, really, then, yeah. OK, I should just say, by the way, if you can hear, if you're listening to this, you can hear clinking and so on. We're in a restaurant, so that's, that's what it is. We're not just sort of making a lot of noise. Um, but, so, OK, so it's a very strong area, obviously, Wales, for amateur snooker. And you, you did really well, and you ended up in the World Amateur Championship final at a very young age. Yeah, that was amazing. I, I won the Welsh... It was a strange time, because the game had gone open in 1991, and a lot of the players that were still playing in the amateur game in Wales, people like Anthony Davis, yeah. Ian Sargent, Paul Dawkins, they were sort of halfway through their amateur season uh, and decided to turn professional. So they were taken out of the ranking list, and all of a sudden it, it enabled me to really shoot up the Welsh amateur rankings. Because Anthony was number one at the time in turned pros in the amateur rankings, so he was taken off the list. And I won the Welsh amateur championships beat, uh, in the Newport Centre, beat David Bell 8-5, uh, um, yes, in the final. And uh, I became number one in Wales, and David Bell was number two, and so we jointly represented Wales in, in the World Amateur Championships, which was in Thailand of all places. Yeah. And yeah, incredibly, I played above myself. I was playing at a level, being there, I know, playing for Wales, I don't know what it was, but um, playing matches and the importance of the tournaments, I was finding a level of performance that I'd never achieved in practice or matches before something brought something out of me mm. and I kept winning matches and I got all the way through to the final and um, oddly enough David Bell actually beat Ronnie in that Ronnie was there yeah. that year uh, as a 15 year old I think David Bell was uh, uh, reached a 5-4 right. in in, and David lost in the quarter final to the chap who beat me Nopadon Nopatron mm. who beat me 11-9 in the final a Thailander mm. who played such fantastic snooker I mean I must have played really well I remember his level of play and uh, you know, for him to have beaten me, you know, I must have played really well to have lived with him, really, because uh, I, I rate him very highly. Mm. 
So that was sort of proof of your potential. But I think I'm right in saying you had one of the, one of those rare things, Dominic, a job as well. Yes, um, <laughs> I know. Well, I had a bit of an education behind me. I did a BTEC National Diploma in Business and Finance. Um, I did the first year, got five merits in the constituent parts of the course, and um, I turned professional um, then in May '92. So I didn't do the second year of that. But I did. I worked in the, first in a firm of solicitors in Carmarthen. But then in the police headquarters, David Powers Police Headquarters, which is just around the corner from where Matthew, yeah. Matthew lived, um, in Flannock Gunner Road in Carmarthen, and um, worked in the operations room on the switchboard and the radios, which oh. was a great job. Mm. Um, and I would have had a job there, I'm sure, had I not turned professional. Mm. I wanted to turn professional, but I, it was, I'd sort of, at that particular time, I'd lost my focus on being a professional player, funnily enough. Mm. I sort of, I don't know why, I wouldn't say I was disillusioned or anything like that, it's just, I don't even know that it was because I wasn't, I didn't think I'd be good enough or anything, maybe I needed a sponsor and it would cost a lot of money, mm. but I had a job and that was the way I was looking, I was going to have a career in the police and when I turned professional, the chief superintendent, uh, Mike Gage, he said, well, give it a go, Dominic, and if it doesn't work out, you know, we'll give you a job back in the police, he wanted me to be an officer, I was a civilian right. at the time. And I probably would have liked to have been an officer because I like discipline. I'd like to yeah. be in the RAF or something yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. That type yeah. of thing would have yeah. uh, I'd have liked very much. But mm. uh, I turned professional and uh, I still am one. But of course, when you turn pro, it's different to now. There were a lot of players, weren't there? there were hundreds and hundreds, and you had to go up to the Norbrek. We often yeah. hear people talk about the Norbrek. A lot of people, new snooker fans, wouldn't really know what it was all about. But it was a big hotel in Blackpool. They had the big ballroom, lots of tables, lots of people, lots of matches. Yeah. An interesting time. You were there for sort of three months, really. You would play batches of matches for each event. There were maybe ten events, ranking events, and you'd play your first four rounds in each of those events. And then the next band of seedings would come in. Yeah. The top one to eight, then the top 64. And one thing I remember is when, I mean, I think there were 842 pros when I turned mm. pro. That that's, gives you an idea of the scale <laughs> of the game when the game went open. Yeah. All the amateurs turned professional. Um, and the majority of the amateur players were great players, far better than the lower-ranked professional players at that time, mm. and they were getting hammered. And uh, by the amateur players coming through, so who just turned professional. But uh, I remember, yeah, it was funny because there were so many card schools and, and people going out nightclubbing and drinking, <laughs> getting into terrible states, and, yeah. and these were the guys that were there, maybe had good sponsors, but weren't really there. They were there to have a good time. They weren't there to mm. be professional snooker players and have a eke out a career in the sport. But, you know, I remember when the 128 and particularly the top 64 would come to the Norbrek to play their matches, all the gambling, all the mm. drinking, all the hard scores, they all stopped. Mm. You know, and it was a different world. Mm. And uh, you knew then, you know, the players that were there to win matches and be professional snooker players, yeah. not, not the guys that were there just, you know, for the joy rise, you say. Yeah. I mean, it was a bit like a sort of snook, snooker university, was it? And, wasn't it? And, of course, when people go to university, because they're away from home for the first time, they do have a drink and they enjoy themselves. But how, how did you find it? Did you find that you made progress straight away? Was it what you expected it to be? How, how did it sort of measure up to what you thought? It would be. Playing some of the bottom ranked professional players, um, I was amazed actually. Uh, I was, I, it, it sort of dawned on me that I was a much better player than I thought I was. Oh, <laughs> I was yeah. winning quite a lot of matches. I think in my first year as a pro, I actually I think I won about nine matches to play Ronnie O'Sullivan mm. in, in the World Championships. He beat me 10 5 or 10 4. He lost at the Crucible to McManus. I was only a round or two away from the Crucible myself my first year, or, yeah. from memory. It may have been the second year, but I was winning a lot of matches. I think I started my second year as a professional, ranked 120 in the world. Okay. 
so I'd, you know there were 800 odd pros yeah. so I had a good first year really um, but you are away from home a long time uh, maybe for 17 or 18 I'd have found that tough but at least mm. by then I was 21 or something mm. um, I was adult enough to, to, to cope with that but yeah. you know with so many professionals around and players that were not necessarily there you know to do well at the sport you, yeah. you could easily be you know, led astray and yeah. you know go on all these sort of peccadillos <laughs> but also every every tournament is the same you know one day you're playing in the Dubai Classic the next day the UK Championship but it's not really the Dubai Classic till you get to Dubai and it's not the UK till you got in those days to the Guildhall it's just you're just like in a snooker factory yes that's right mm. uh, you, I mean I remember having to play the odd match here and then I've come up against one of our Eurosport colleagues Mike Hallett yeah. you know, and um you know, all of a sudden you were playing somebody that, you know, you'd seen a lot on television, you know, and all of a sudden, and you could see the professionalism in them, their shot selection and everything, and you'd learn a lot from these guys. And I lost, I think, 5-3 tonight to qualify for, I think, Belgium or somewhere, the Humo Masters or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think after about two or three years, I did get to the odd venue, um, which was great. And then, you know, you start playing the top 16 players, which mm. was a great honour. I learned a lot. I think I played Hendry. I was actually 5-3, uh, I think I was 6-3 up on him and lost 9-6. He, he played phenomenal snooker mm. to beat me in the last, and I was playing so well because mm. play, of who I was playing. Mm. brought the best out of me, and I learned very quickly then, you know, about shot selection. And I think it's what a lot of the players do today, people like Neil Robertson and, and the yeah. Chinese players, when they come over here and play the British players, they learn while they're on the tour, the shot selections, yeah. and, you know, they lose so many frames when they play the wrong shot at the wrong time but I did that when I was a junior you know and uh, I learned from it and progressed and I definitely wanted to be a professional snooker player so I kept working on the game and uh, you know and and I got better and better. Okay well that takes us nicely to the 1997 Grand Prix you've been on the the circuit a few years and this was your your big breakthrough you win a BBC televised ranking event beat John Higgins in the final what are your memories of that week? Yeah, it's a strange one that because um, I was ranked 54 in the world, and I think Griffiths had decided to retire yeah. that year. Um, I was just—it was like any other normal event to me. I was just going to the venue to play my matches. I just kept winning matches. I think I beat Andy Hicks. Um, I beat Chris Small. I beat Steve Davis, and it was shown on grandstand. Actually, I was two 0 down to Steve, and I remember going to the uh, lavatory. Um, and trying to compose myself, I, I said to myself, "I'm like, there's no way I'm going out there and losing in this fashion." I was showing him too much respect. He was dictating the play, and I came out more attacking player and actually won five straight frames and won five two. But I, I know I won that tournament, and it's a great achievement. But I was lucky in a way because I was four three down to Dave Harold. I think in the last sixteen maybe, mm. and I needed two snoopers on the pink, and I got them and won that frame for four all. And I won the last frame on the pink, so I should have been out really. Um, I think a lot of players can say that though even, even the Hendries yes. and the Davises things like that would have happened to them yeah, yeah I suppose yeah it's all part of the game isn't mm. it getting snookers and I did get them and I did win that frame legitimately mm. but yeah um, and I played Chris Small I was 2-0 down to Chris and I think uh, and I won 5-2 uh, and all of a sudden I'm in the semis then and, I, and I'm playing Jimmy White mm. who was having a bit of resurgence at the time and um, obviously crowd favourite Jimmy White playing at the Bournemouth International Centre, big crowd, television coverage, and a fabulous atmosphere. I think when you play a match like that, that's when you know you're going to be cut out for it or not, because yeah. if you if you have a fear of crowds, uh, I think it's demophobia, isn't it? 
Um, if you say so. Yes. Um, that's a fear of crowds, audiences and things. And, you know, the big time, the television cameras yeah. and whatnot. You're going to struggle because if you're going to get anywhere in any sport, you're going to have yeah. to cope with that. And, and, and I did, and, and I was 4 0 up on Jimmy, came out to 4 2 and I won 6 6 2. And then I got the great man, the world number two at the time, John Higgins, in the final. Well, that was the easiest match of my life, really. Nobody expected to, uh, me to win, I didn't expect to win. Mm. All I, I never forget, I just went out there not wanting to be humiliated, just to play a snooker match as well as I can and see what happens. And John had a terrible run of the ball early on in, in the match and um, went 4-0 down to me. I made one fifty break, but I was playing quite well, but John, just nothing went right for him. And uh, he did his best to come back at me, and he got within a frame of me several times, but I won 9-6, and I did play very, very well the last couple of frames, I think made 120 in a 77. So. so you weren't feeling nervous as you got towards the winning line? You actually, no. you actually fancied you could then close it out? I didn't allow myself to think about it, actually. I remember being 5-3 up at the interval, and in my hotel room before the evening session began, Derek Hill... Yeah. Uh, uh, the Jan Tyriak of the super coaches <laughs> called me in the room and he said uh, says Dom says well play for today mate he says you're doing great he says, says let me give you one bit of advice he says when you go out there tonight whatever you do be prepared for 8 all. he's going to come back at you and he's going to yeah. do this and going to and that was for, I've never forgotten that what a great bit of advice because mm. he fires you up on the world number 2 of course he's going to yeah. you know, try and attack me, bully me, get back at me, put me under pressure. But I never thought of that. I just thought myself on 5-3 up here, just thought of myself 5-3 moving forward. Mm. Never thought of John coming back at me. So in other words, if that happened, and it did happen, I, wouldn't, I wasn't prepared for that mentally. Mm. Uh, I, it was something I'd cro- that barrier I'd have crossed you know, when, if and when I came to it. Yeah. It was great advice. It was a, a great piece of advice for anybody to give to anybody in that mm. position, and uh, I've never forgotten it. Mm. I think I'm right in saying he was either the first ranking event of the season or certainly one of the first. It and, was the first, yeah. yeah. And, of course, now, if, if the rank, ranking system now had been in place then, you would have got in the top 16 immediately. You'd probably been at the Masters, at the Crucible. But, of course, it was different then. And yeah. You, you, you then had to sort of follow it up, didn't you, for the rest of the season. And it was difficult. I think you found it quite difficult actually coping with winning the tournament. It was a monkey on my back. I hate that phrase, but it puts it in that shell. I mean, I, I, I'd won something... Of, Great prestige. I wasn't ready to win. I was ranked fifty odd in the world. Never got. I don't. I doubt very much. I ever got beyond the top sixteen before. And also, I'm a winner, and people are watching me. In the same way, I suppose that Stuart Bingham's being watched by everybody, and yep. he's on a, by his standards of winning the world championships. By his standards, a very mediocre start to be mm. in the, the season because he, he must be feeling that everybody's watching yep. him, and he's under it. And it's, it's the same type of thing, I suppose. And it took probably years. Uh, I knew I was a winner and a champion, and not many people are in snooker. And I sort of, I always, I had a great deal of self-esteem, but I wasn't producing the, the, the those sort of results to to warrant that sort of self-esteem in a way. And, it, and I didn't for years and years. And I sort of slotted nicely into yeah. my ranking position. That's where I was in the game, sort of just outside the 16, really. Yeah. But I. When you're a professional sportsman, this thing about, well, for me anyway, being in the 16s is, 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 is a lot of nonsense, really. It doesn't mean anything. Well, it didn't to me. I was never bothered about that. But, yes, on the modern rank system, I would have been there many times because I think I've been uh, originally 12 uh, in the 16 a good few times during the season. But in those days, as you know, the rank system didn't count until the end of the World Championship. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, flawed system, possibly, maybe. I mm. don't know. But... Um, 
now, I mean, yes, I would have been in the 16 many times, but um, something, funnily enough, I've never actually officially been in, which is strange, but mm. never bothered me much. Well, there's still time, of course. There but, is, uh, yeah. So you, you win that, and you, you know, you are a top player, you're still, you know, we see you regularly, tournaments, quarterfinals, semifinals and so on, but it's ten years then until you win your second one. And I remember the Shanghai Masters, again, that was the first tournament of the season, it was earlier than the Grand Prix, yes. and I was commentating for Eurosport, and day one of the tournament, Neil Fold said, he was looking down the draw, he said, it's very difficult to pick a winner the first tournament of the season, but he said, you've got to look at the players who will have been practising in the summer. And he said, Dominic Dale will be one of them. He said, Dominic is, could be one to watch. And of course, he was absolutely right, because you beat Ryan Day in the final, and played really well, I think, that week. I did. You know, it was a strange story, this, because I wanted to change cues. Mm. I haven't done that many times, have <laughs> I? Um, and um, I'd ordered a, a three-quarter maple cue, uh, one from John Paris and one from Trevor White, and I wanted it to be 18 and a half ounces. And Trevor's came um, about a couple of weeks before John's arrived, and I loved the cue to play with, but it was about 19 and a quarter ounces, and mm. very heavy. But I liked the cue, and I did change to it, and I actually played my qualifier uh, against Roy McLeod with it, and I mm. beat him 5-0. I made two centuries, a 68, and I played out my skin. And then about a week or so later, um, John Paris's uh, three-quarter maple arrived. Well, I found it played exactly like Trevor White's did, shots with side over distance and everything, but it was 18 and a half ounces, and I liked the lightness of the shaft on my bridge. And so I changed over to it, and I went to Shanghai about six days later. The tables were very slow and heavy there, very hard to score. And um, I won my first match, I think, against Ken Doherty. And... Um, I thought to myself, God, these tables are playing a bit heavy. And incredibly, I managed to get some abrasive sorry, sandpaper yeah. um, from somewhere. Maybe the tournament's office, I don't know. Um, and I actually took about a millimetre out of the shaft, about sort of through the middle of the shaft, to create a bit more give, a bit more spring, flexibility in the shaft, to give me more ball reaction on the table. And uh, I just kept playing with it, and I kept winning matches and playing really well. And Ryan should have beat me in the final. He was 6-2 up on me, playing great. He made two centuries. I think I made one, uh, maybe. Uh, he, he was playing some great snooker. But in the evening session, it went on a bit. We only had about an hour and a half, or an hour and three quarters, I think, for the start of the evening session. Well, I knew what I had to do. I just had to go for my shots, make something happen. And Ryan could not hit the proverbial barn door of the banjo. Mm -hmm. He couldn't hit the right side of a ball on a long pot. He, I've never seen Ryan struggle like that. I don't think Ryan scored more than 80 points in the whole of the evening session in the seven frames, and I played really well. Yeah. I didn't make massive breaks, although the first frame of the evening I did make that 1-4-3, which mm. was the highest break of the tournament. So I won the highest break prize. But other than that, I kept, just kept winning frames in a couple of visits because the table was slow and heavy. Mm. It went into the pack, the rest didn't disperse very well. And uh, but I didn't miss many pots, and I played really well, and, and incredibly, I won all all, of, all six, seven frames of the evening session. It must have been satisfying ten years on, because you know, you I think if, after winning the Grand Prix in '97, if someone had said it's going to be another ten years till you win another big tournament, you'd probably be disappointed. But the fact is, you proved you could still do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you know, you just. You, you, you try to prepare yourself for every tournament, but sometimes there's so many tournaments, mm. you're not as prepared as well individually for each tournament that comes along as you maybe were in the earlier days when there were only ten tournaments. Yeah. Um, and um, sometimes you, you get so used to mediocrity, winning a couple of matches and losing, yeah. that you, 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 don't, you don't see yourself as a winner anymore. Um, until maybe you do 
get through to the last 16 and the quarters and then all of a sudden you think you can win it. Mm. Something happens, you think, well, I've got this far now, there's only a few more matches left. Mm. You think you're one of the big boys now and it just lifts you psychologically and I think that's pretty much how I won that one. But Mm. if you do look at being objective and realistic here... um, Rather than sort of looking at things through rose tinted spectacles, yeah. that you do get a you know a, a very diverse spectrum of winners in in some of the tournaments abroad, the Australian and the Chinese tournaments, um, more so possibly than you do in the British tournaments. I don't know why that is, but it does happen. Mm. So you know, I'm just one of those, I suppose. Well, of course, your other great triumph more recently was the shootout, which is a completely different. Tournament often described as a bit of fun, but it's, it looks like high pressure to playing because it's so manic, isn't it? That is actually exactly the pressure that you feel there for ten minutes because one mistake and it could be your last shot. Mm. The pressure there is incredible, um, and I've got to be honest, that tournament isn't for everybody. Mm. The majority of snooker players are the more sort of boring, introverted people. Um, but every now and again, you know, you get an extrovert and comes along, um, like myself or Michael Holt or that type of guy, mm. and that tournament suits that style of player. Although saying that, you've had Barry Hawkins, a winner, who's a Nigel Bond, a Nigel Bond. <laughs> well, Nigel's a quick player, so that's that's yeah. one of the reasons he. They're won. clever players as well, though, aren't they? You got to have yeah. a bit of something upstairs because you oh, got to think really quickly. I managed that year to get the perfect balance between having great fun with the audience mm. but taking it seriously as well. And the fun I was having with the audience took some of the pressure away, I suppose. But I remember playing the year before I won it, and I was a nervous wreck, and I lost to Mark Hallam. And I played him in the year I won it, and I forgot all about the rule that a cue ball had to reach it, or a ball had to hit a cushion round. I left a safety shot short of the ball cushion. He's made 34 of it, or 33, Mm. 38 nil up, but then made a few mistakes, and I got back in, and I I won it with a minute or so left. And... uh, I could have lost that match, but then I went on to... That was the only match I was in trouble. I hammered everybody else I played, which was fantastic, really. That tournament, funnily enough, um, is the favourite tournament of all the ones I've won. Because it puts snooker in 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 the glitz and the glamour world, you know, with the walk-on girls. I'm good friends with Jade, one of the walk-on ladies. Unfortunately, she lost her mother about a year ago, which was a great shame. I went to the funeral. But, but, you know, to have that in snooker, Mm -hmm. you know, the most... Sinfully boring introverted sports on television, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to have that around snooker, yeah. it's just fantastic. And you know, I shall always look back at that as the favourite tournament I've won, really. I okay. really do think that. What you did after, of course, you, you treated the audience to a little bit of your singing. How, how did you, where did you get that voice from, Dominic? Well, you, the voice is something you're born with, really. Mm. Um, but obviously, you can train it, make it stronger, more powerful. That came about from I did an exhibition in Port Talbot with uh, Willie Thorne. Ryan was there and myself and at half time there was a singer on and I, would, I used to sing in the choir at school and I sing a lot of Beatles songs and all kinds of stuff you know um, and um, I spoke to this guy and I think his name was Neil was, I could tell straight away he was a trained singer and uh, being Welsh I thought you know I'd, I'd have a chat with him and see must someone locally I did I remember at the time trying to find somebody who could be singing lessons and he said, oh, a guy called Alan Davis from Neath uh, taught me to sing. Oh, right, so that's not far from where I live. Um, it's only about 40 miles. So uh, he gave me some contact details, and I, I got in touch with Alan, and he, sure enough, he gave singing lessons. So I started off, and uh, you do a few scales, and he, he's able to place your voice and, and things. And I liked opera at that time. 
Mm. Um, quite young, I was in my sort of early twenties, really. But um, you, it's a bit like training in the gym. You know, your muscles develop, and it's the same with the voice. You do the scales, and your voice develops. Um, it was an interesting thing. I always used to listen to the crooners and Roy Orbison, one of our favourite singers ever. Always will be in Mario Lanza. And that lovely even vibrato, that wave in the voice, that la, that lovely <laughs> even tone. I always wondered how you achieve that, mm. whether it's whether it's something you actually put on. Uh, and I remember Alan asking Alan this, and he said, "No, he says you don't. That that that's basically breath control. That comes with the training, with the voice and everything, and it's natural, and it'll just happen." Mm. And, and he's sure enough, he's right. And I, and I had lessons with him for probably 18 months or so. Mm. Um, maybe a bit less than that, but yeah, off and on. You're a man of many interests, though, aren't you? Because, you know, it's, it's not just that. You, I mean, I know you like sort of old films, don't you? You've sort of visited old film locations <laughs> yeah. as well. Well, commentating for Eurosport, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, one of my favourite films was uh, The Green Man. It's a comedy film, it's only on for about um, an hour and ten minutes or something. I think. It, it was from a play by... Uh, Frank Launder, I think, and Sidney Gilliatt, uh, a play called Meet, Meet a Body. Mm-hmm. And it was made into a film with Alistair Sim and George Cole. And I love all the old films. I mean, George Cole actually was evacuated in the war. Unfortunately, sadly, no longer. Yeah. He's died in yeah. about a month or two. Yeah. But he was actually evacuated, I think, as an 80 year old during the war. And Alistair Sim brought him up right. in, I think, Oxfordshire way. And he became a child actor and starred in many films with Alistair Sim, the St. Trinity's films mm-hmm. and The Green Man. And um, yeah, uh, I found out through a film forum. Um, Brit movie, I think it's called. I was a member of it then. I still probably am, but we'll have a clue how to sign in now. But I found out where the house was. Uh, it was in uh, in Surrey um, that was featured in the, heavily in the film. And I visited that, and uh, a great place called the Edgware Bury uh, Hotel um, near Bournemouth Studios, Shepperton, that sort of area, and uh, where they filmed. Uh, Things well, one of my favourite ever films, School for Scoundrels, with Terry Thomas. The tennis court where they where they play with the where he plays with Ian Carmichael is still there. Mm-hmm. And I sat there where Jeanette Scott, the, the beautiful lady, was in the film. Um, I sat exactly where she was sat watching the tennis. It was great, you know. And I was having breakfast there. It's a big hotel. Things are chorus hotel. Fantastic, you know. And I visited them for a day and. Yeah, I do like the old films. I don't like this gratuitous violence, these American films, all bombs, explosives and shooting people. I'm afraid that's not for me. They're right. classless. Okay. There are the odd great films. Yeah. Some of them are too graphic for me and I don't like them. Marilyn Monroe is another interest of yours. Yes, I used to be uh, a big fan of Marilyn Monroe um, as, a, as a kid. Um, beautiful, beautiful woman. I always wonder what it was about Marilyn that drew so many millions of fans to her. She had something I thought nobody else had. And I just think it's... Uh, I sort of managed to sort of quantify it over the years. It, it's sort of... When I see Marilyn on the screen, it's, she's got this sort of please-help-me sort of look about her. Um, you know, and knowing about her life as well, that sort of manifests itself in, 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 in real life. She was a troubled, troubled lady, you know, in many different... Uh, I think she was bipolar, wasn't diagnosed then, uh, as it would be now, but um, a depressive lady, really. A lot of you know, highs and lows in life, and uh, she was an interest in mine, um, right through until my sort of mid-late 20s, really, until I sort of just matured as an adult and mm. had my own other interests, really. Yeah. But as a teenager, um, yeah, she, she was... Before I diversified, branched out and had other interests, mm. so she, she was probably my... 
a number one fan, yeah. Well, well, you moved. It was a logical step. You moved from Marilyn Monroe to collected snooker memorabilia, which you, I'm not sure you still do, but you, you, at one time you collected a lot, didn't you? Yes, I did. I had quite a lot of great stuff. Um, but when I moved to Vienna, I sold that all. Um, I didn't. Again, I'd sort of grown out of it, and, I, and and it's a bit of a dead area, Billy's memorabilia. Like so many areas of antiques, actually, they're not an investment. They really aren't. As Britain becomes more of a multicultural society, I think British antiques and a lot of that, it, it, it's uh, becoming less and less of an investment now, um, I think. But I used to collect billiards uh, books. Um, but you're fascinated, aren't you, by the... I mean, oh, I am. I mean, the Clive, history, yeah. Clive, you got from Clive, the billiard player, I think, a couple of volumes yes. of that, and you loved that, didn't you? Oh, fantastic, yeah, yeah the mine of information. <laughs> you see, well, I don't really collect snooker men, Billy, because um, snooker really was only popularised by Joe Davis in the 20s, uh, when, when billiards was literally being killed as a public entertainment yeah. because the leading players are too good. So to fill the, the end of a session, a billiard session, they used to put the snooker balls up for a frame or two and the, and the public, Joe Davis seemed to realise that the public were more interested in that and liked that more. And, you know, he sort of took snooker on board and, and uh, improved it technically and, and, and got to snooker's end, I suppose, as far as he was concerned and, and uh, initiated the first World Championships in 1927. Um, on a challenge basis then he beats a guy called Tom Dennis in his in his billiards rooms in Nottingham but yeah um, but not many not many players are interested on let's be honest no, in the history I don't know another one oh, ok well there you are but, you, but so why are you? What, 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 do you what is it do you think about it is it just that because you're part of it you want to know where it sort of came from yeah well billiards is obviously a much 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 older game than mm. snooker so most of the billiards antiquities are much older than the snooker ones of course but uh I started with an old billiards book and I just read about the billiards players and then Roger Lee brought out all these billiards DVDs so that really got, got me going, the, the billiards bug and uh, I used to collect billiards books and I was fascinated by their, their ideas of technique and more so that, you know, the, the style of billiards cues compared to snooker cues of today that Burroughs and Watts would make and, and the companies, um, Orms and you know, Riley's that the type of cues they're making for billiards would be completely different to snooker cues today. Mm. Um, far less rigid, quite, quite shallow tapers in the shaft. Um, but, you know, having collected so many of them, you do come across one that's stiff as a poker sometimes, which is usable for snooker. Sean mm. Murphy's old cue was, uh, was an old yeah. Peridon Tom Newman champion cue, which he used for donkey's ears up until recently. Um, but, yeah, I just... I, I think, you know, like in old clocks... Um, I love old clocks. That's my main interest in terms right. of antiques. Yeah. It's the horological world, the old clocks, basically. That's my expertise, an art deco. Mm. But liking... I think, you know, you can draw a comparison. If you like old clocks, art deco, you, you know, and antiques generally, mm. then, you know, that there's your link between that and, and billiards mm. memorabilia, which is old. Uh, you know, it's got a history to it, and I like all that. And I love timbers. Okay. So looking you, at all the different timbers and cues, uh, yeah, it fascinates me. Do you spend much time in the players' room discussing Art Deco with the other players? <laughs> I don't think they know what the term means. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that's the thing though. You do have a lot of interest. You love, still love snooker, but you do oh, have yes, a lot do, of other yeah. interests, don't you? Which you know sort of, sort of fulfil you. Yeah. Um, I, if you're going to be a top sportsman in any sport, the more tunnel visioned you are, the more single-minded you are, the less intelligent you are, the better. Um, <laughs> if you have too many interests. You can't be 100% uh, focused on, on snooker. Mm. Uh, but I've never really minded that. You know, I'm just pleased, because I do love, obviously, as you say, snooker. And I'm actually practising more now than I ever did in my heyday years, mm. in my 20s and 30s. 
you know, I'm doing five, four, five hours a day now with a smile on my face. I don't find it uh, mm. irksome at all. Mm. It's not drudgery or anything like that. I enjoy mm. doing it, and I work to a purpose. I have set routines. Mm. Um, you know, I'm I'm going to be moving to Southport next month to live with my partner. So, you know, I have other responsibilities. So, so that's going to keep me practicing and, and trying as hard as I can for as long as I can. Mm. I've got a great base uh, in the Southport Conservative Club. Um, shortly when I move there and I'll be able to practice there in the morning I'll be the only person there so I can really work on my game and home my skills and that's going to really benefit me um, but yeah I mean I, I, I love it I love practicing I love being part of the game and I'm, when I look back up on my career no matter what happens from here on in I've left my mark on the sport I've won two yeah. majors I've won the shootout you know, I've done commentary which is something I'd love to be full time involved in when mm. I finish playing because I, I love I know the players' games and shot selections, and I love talking about the game and I love being involved. But I was going to ask you about that actually. But how did you sort of start doing that, and, and and why is it something you want to move into? Is it just so you can stay involved in, in snooker? Yeah, and I do love I love talking about the game and you know knowing all the players and everything. Just want to be involved in the game mm. uh, in a way that I can earn a living from it still. And I suppose coaching doesn't offer that really. And the other thing is, I don't necessarily believe in coaching in, in, in snooker at professional level. It's more psychological. And Ding's problems at the moment are more confidence issues, not technical ones. Mm. When, you, when you're low on confidence, you're never going to strike the ball as purposefully and as well and as accurately and as confidently <coughs> as when you are confident, full of confidence. Yeah. And I'm not sure. There's only a certain type of coach that could help Ding, in my opinion. But I won't get into that, really, but that's up to him. But... Yeah, I just, um, I, I do like, I got involved in the commentary. Somebody was ill or couldn't make it or something, and I was asked to do a couple of days or try commentary out in the Welsh Open. Mm. Oh, this must be 15 years ago or so. And um, I gave it a go, and everybody said I took to it like a duck to water, and um, I did bits and pieces since then. And, and, but, yeah, I, I think I've been doing the Welsh now. It must be for ten years or so, mm. and non-stop every year. And I'll be doing it next next uh, next next year, which I should look forward to. Mm. Um, you don't have a problem being honest, giving honest opinions when you got to go back to the players' room and see these guys, or even actually play them. Well, it gives a night. No, no. Um, there's a way of saying things, mm. um, and I don't mind admitting when I'm wrong if something you know, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm mistaken about something, but. It shows how long I've been commentating for, because I, I remember having advice once of David Vine, no less, right, 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 yeah. who I used to have breakfast with in the hotel mm. uh, in Preston in the UK and everything. I was good friends with David and, mm. and his floor manager, um, Dave Bowden. Yeah, 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 good yeah, friend, yeah. lovely chap. And um, there's a way, I mean, for instance, let's say I'm commentating John Higgins, a very good friend of mine, who for me, if, if I'm forced to name my greatest player of all time, it's he. Okay. But anyway. I'd be talking fractions, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, for instance, if John's on a simple born and he misses it, rather than say, well, that's, a, that's an awful shot or this and that, I try and, I try and step away from sort of disparaging comments. I'd rather say, I'd look at it from John's point of view and say something like, oh, I'm sure John will be terribly disappointed at having missed that one. Mm-hmm. And that's a great way of saying something. Because you're looking from his point of yeah. view, and it, you know, it's, it's a way of saying what a terrible shot. But, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Or I like something I like to do. If you've got a frame winning chance, as Willie Thorne put it, with all, all the reds all over the place, mm. I'd say you know I'd say in commentary something like you know when you when you're a player in this position, you, you're quite harsh on yourself mm. if, or hard on yourself if you don't win the frame from this sort of opportunity. Mm. 
And another, it's a good way of saying something without sort of saying you ought to win the frame from this, or he's you know, six to four on, or whatever the <laughs> betting terms are. It's Willie Thorne with Cotton, you know, to win this frame or something. Or, you know, I don't like to do that. Mm. You know, we all have our own styles, don't we? Mm. You know, in commentary. I think it's funny though. You often hear players not not liking what commentators say and sort of having a go at them on Twitter. But but if you ever go in the players' room, this is what gets me. You go in the players' room at the venue, you'll hear far worse oh, said by the players. You're absolutely <laughs> right. That's a good point you made yeah. there, David. Absolutely. How right. does he miss that? He's useless and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. Absolutely true. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's uh, it's a nice thing to be a snooker commentator, and I, I think some of the players. That realise you know you get reasonably well paid for it. Maybe there's an element of jealousy there. I, I don't know. I really don't know. But um, I I love being a commentator. and I would love to be a full-time commentator and don't play the game because mm. I'm involved in it. I can still earn some money at the game. Yeah. Other than that, I would like a role with a world snooker as a, um, you know as a board of people to, to to help improve the game or. If I did coaching, I'd love to go abroad and coach uh, somewhere like in China where bring a few players on mm. because most of their problems I find are coming through a shot selection. I've seen Chinese players lose so many matches just through playing the wrong shot at the wrong time because yeah. they're still learning the game yeah. from basically the British players who've had great amateur backgrounds yeah. against other great amateur players and learnt the game. Yeah, yeah. So just to wrap up then, um, you're in your 40s now, of course, mm. you're a senior. Um, what are your sort of Ambitions in terms of playing. How much longer do you want to go on? Because you're still up there in the rankings. You're just yeah. on the edge of the 32, I think, and you know, yeah. chance to, to, to keep going up. But you're not done with the game yet, are you? No, not at all. Mm. Um, people ask me, you know, what sort of age is it that you can go mm. on to in snooker? And the real truth is, I don't think anybody can know that yet, mm. because snooker now is being played at its highest level, uh, or strength and depth wise, yeah. certainly that uh, that's ever been played at before, and. We've got no yardsticks. Mm. Maybe it's set Steve Davis, who was in the world's top 16 at the age of 50. Mm. But if you take Steve out of the equation, you've got to look at you know you people like uh, you Terry Griffiths, your John Spencers, mm. and, and your Reardons, and I don't know. Who Fred are. Davis, 64 in the world yeah. semi-finals. Yeah. Well, you've got to look. Uh, these guys, uh, a lot of them money on the exhibition circuit. They had a great rapport with audiences. Mm. But in terms of being prepared for a snooker match, that. It was non-existence that, that non-existent that that sort of focus on being preparing yourself for a professional snooker match. They just walked out and played. Yeah. They, they smoked. They drank. <laughs> they didn't look after their health. And 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 the other thing is, of course, they were rubbish. They couldn't play. They couldn't play. That's, that's quite a statement. No, they couldn't play. <laughs> Technically, they were inept. <laughs> They were playing on bigger pockets, they couldn't make breaks, they were refusing pots you'd never even think of refusing now. Yeah. Uh, it's a fact, I'm sorry, it's a fact, it's a harsh fact. You talk about, you've, you've, right to the, you've been waiting right to the end to be controversial. <laughs> well, it's not, it's, it's not controversy, it's, it's fact. I mean, you look at someone like Alex Higgins, a potter and a break builder. Look how many, I think he was a pressure for 22 or 23 years. Look how many centuries he made in that time. Look at how many frames and how many matches he played. I'm sorry, but I mean, these guys were useless by today's standards. Of course they were, because we as players are far better technically. We know what's required uh, in, in a queue that, that's suited to these tables. We're playing on much tighter pockets. And yet we're making breaks, um, 100 breaks all the time. Of course that's true. It's the same in, in tennis with the wooden rackets, and now we've got graphite and carbon fibre and all this and all that. 
fitness and, and, and everything and diet has come along in way in tennis. It's the same in so many sports, golf, everything, cricket, you name it. And uh, it, of course it's the same in snooker, so it is true. Listen, I should know, I've got, I've got archive footage, hours and hours and hours of it. I've got the 1979 World Final that Griffiths beat to Dennis Taylor in 24-16. I can't watch more than... I haven't watched more than the third frame because the standard is that bad. Right. You just cannot watch it. Listen, it is terrible. You forget... Do you know, I've even watched Steve in his heyday. And, of course, he was winning everything. And we all hated him because he was winning everything. <laughs> I did as a youngster. But, you know, and I watched him playing near his best... And his best now, his best then would be maybe between 10 and 16 in the rankings. It wouldn't be as imperious as you would think he was at that time. He was in terms of his results and in tournament wins. But in terms of his form and his ability, he made a lot more mistakes than you sort of remember him making, really. Mm. And um, so I think what I say is true, because Steve Davis was, was uh, several levels above the next best. Mm. He, re- he rarely got beaten. It was all about him. If he played well, he didn't lose. Mm. And that's, that's what I'm trying to say, you know. You, you Dean Reynolds, those type of guys, yeah. vastly inferior by today's standards. Mm. Because they were playing quite well in those days, but on pockets that were much, much bigger, much, much bigger. So you've got to look at that as well, you know. OK, well, that's uh, an interesting note to end on, Dominic. Well, you listen, you're always entertaining, good value, and we hope that you continue to entertain us for many more years. Well, thank you, Dave. I've enjoyed it very much, and yes, I hope I've got a good few years left in me yet. Brilliant, and thanks to everybody for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. OK, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.